Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks so much for joining this next episode of In the Nick of Time. We're very excited today to have Bob joining us, the CEO of WeBA, to talk about vectors and what they mean to us when it comes to generative AI and AI in general and kind of what the future looks like. So it's going to be a, a great discussion with someone that's been at the top of the curve when it comes to innovating in that space. So it's going to be very interesting. If you have questions for Bob, start asking the questions now because we already have about 30 plus questions for Bob from social media. So start asking with a queue uh, so we know it's a question in the chat below. With that, if you've not subscribed to the show yet and you've yet to get your email every week about the next episode, do that on the website in the nick of time.tv so you can be notified for the next episode. We're not going to have a show next week. We're going to see you guys in, in two weeks. It's going to be a very interesting discussion as well. Uh, so stay tuned for that. You get a, an email if you go subscribe to inniqofftime.tv. Uh, also, of course, it's kind of relevant today because we're going to be talking about generative AI and, and open AI and all the stuff we see happening in this new game-changing technology, completely disrupting everything we know and, and how much is that going to be in the next 20 years. Nobody really knows, but it's going to be definitely interesting to pay attention to what's going to happen. And if you've yet to try Assage, go to assage.ai, create an account for free. You'll be able to get access to GPT-3.5 for, you know, Cohere, Google Bard, DaVinci, Flentify, Falcon, and so on. And, you know, we kind of help you bring your data and train data. In fact, we use WeVA on the product. And WeVA was picked not only because it's able to work AI gapped and uh, on government clouds, but it's also really top-notch when it comes to security and scanning results. And uh, we were able to partner with ChainGuard to be able to bring a container that's already has a very small number of CVEs to be able to be approved and accredited for government use. So go check it out. And of course, you'll see with Assage the ability to create plugins and integrate with your API, data sets, and so on. So a lot of great features. We have a great video on Assage.ai. Go check it out. Again, we have a discount right now. Let's, let's beat China which gives you $5 off forever. So for 25 bucks, you can get access to, uh, to our dear Assage and be able to ask questions and uh, augment it with your data and see all the plugins, Git uh, integrations and Elastic, uh, MongoDB, SQL, you name it. We have so many integrations to be able to tap into your data sets. So go check that out. We're going to bring Bob in a second, but you know I wanted to give you a quick rundown of his background. Of course, he's a technology entrepreneur, a technologist, and even media artist from the Netherlands. He's a co-founder of Wavegate and the chairman of the Creative Software Foundation. In March 2016, he started the open source vector search engine Wavegate. And you're back in 2016, maybe he knew, but we didn't know how much that's going to disrupt industry. And, you know, it's been a game changer when it comes to, of course, enabling teams to augment LLMs and generative AI capabilities to bring your data and be able to then go beyond the limitation of the uh, hallucinations and the, the issue we see with gener generative AI. So it's, it's a real game changer. And the fact that, uh, you know, Bob was kind enough to bring this to the open source industry and uh, making sure that this can run a gap, you know, a lot of competition, but very few of them can actually run air gapped and run, you know, inside of your Kubernetes cluster without depending on a bunch of SaaS APIs. And so, you know, and you compare, of course, with some other competitors that have Chinese involvement. That's a non-starter, of course, for, for us here. 
and of course you have none of that none of that with the team and and the video team if you've been to their slack channel they are exceptional you know helping people don't care about money they, they don't even ask you if you're a paid customer or not but they're going to help you and it's just an awesome awesome team so you know bob published and uh, has lectured about open source software business model and the positioning of uh, broadly applicable uh, infrastructure software database and search engine and during a presentation for the TEDx University in Amsterdam, he shared his ideas about the, the evolvement of language impact ideas in software development. So if you've not connected to him on LinkedIn, I recommend you do that. And I recommend you join the Slack chat of WeVA. A lot of great discussions, a lot of innovation happening, and it's kind of becoming this you know, centralized brain and, and really interconnecting you know, pretty much everything you can think about. And it's you know, it's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen in that market. But if you if you want to, you know, have a play and not be putting your head in the sand when it comes to what's going to happen in generative AI, you definitely want to pay attention to this stuff because that's going to be a big piece of the disruption that we're going to be facing in the next, you know, two, three, four, five years, and maybe even six months. It's moving so fast. So with that, I'd like to bring Bob now on the show. Welcome. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Uh, for having me, Nick, it's great to be here. Yeah, no, we're we're excited because you know you, you have such a breadth of knowledge, and you know honestly, we're so so kind of you to not only give back to the open source community with all your work. Your team is exceptional. You know, I've told you that before, but uh, they've helped us again and again. We try to to give back when we can, but you know, I think it's been uh, exceptional to see, you know, not only their focus on security, but also in, you know, creating a better product, better features. We picked Weaviate at the very beginning for us here at SH. It was a no-brainer, honestly. It was just common sense. Uh, I don't think I even hesitated, honestly, and I think it was a great decision. Certainly don't regret it. And, you know, it brings everything we needed, and it does it with full control and complete, complete flexibility. So, you know, people go, go check it out on their website. But, you know, before that, I'd like to give you a chance to give us a little bit about your journey and what you've been up to, and then we're going to get into the real me. The title of this episode, you know, of course, was created, and we've done it together with ChatGPT, like always, well, with SH, but, you know, GPT-4, as we always do here. And I like that vector connection, exploring the future of AI, right? And we're going to dig into this future together. And I think you, more than most people on the show that we had, have this vision way beyond you know what most people can even comprehend so it's going to be a great great discussion so thanks for joining us yeah, thanks again for having me so well, to answer your question about my journey so i've been i've been working in software for a for a very long time and i i always like to say that it has to do a little bit i'm gonna date myself now but the i'm i'm born in 85 and the when i was like around you know when i was like 14 15 years old we got like so we got an computer with an internet connection and a lot of people wanted stuff online and they didn't know how to build websites or those kind of things and that's really how my career started so that's very i was very young when i started that so i've been working in tech for a for a long time now in that journey i was and i i'm not sure exactly when i was but i think it was like 2015 2016 something like that i came in i came in touch with machine learning models and the, the language, the newer language models that was back then seen as new. And at some point the idea was born that I wanted to solve the problem of unstructured data, right? So it's okay, we're dealing with unstructured data. We somehow need to 
related to each other. And these vector embeddings played a role in that. So basically back then I started to play with, I believe, I believe it was Glove. I could be wrong, could be something else, but I think Glove. And Glove, it's still it's still on GitHub. So you can see you can download it. And what you basically get, you get a you get a CSV file with a word, like a single word. So it was back then called word embeddings. And that word had a vector embedding next to it. And I think in a bit we'll dive into what these vector embeddings are. But the what you basically could do is like you start you know, you could start to calculate with words. And rather than storing data based on just keywords or those kind of things, you could start to store data and information based on the on the embeddings. So that is kind of how the journey started. Then, of course, a lot of research was done. So transformers were released and those kind of things. And kind of on the, on the back of that, the, uh, the database grew because people were like, hey, wait a second, now we can do search with these ML models. And we need a database for that. So the first thing that we saw was that most people started to look at like what I always like to call like better search and recommendation. What's also interesting, what you said, Nick, was about the about the community, because the reason that I think it's important that we're you know generous to our community is because it's actually people like you and your team that actually tell us what they need, right? So so one thing that we've learned is like everything that we do, like around security or certain type of integrations that we have, or the fact that we have hybrid search, and we can maybe talk about that in a bit as well. Those are things that we learn from the community. So the community starts to play around with the database and they ask us questions and things that they want. So that's how we learn. So it's like a, you work together on these, on these kind of things. So what we started to see was that there was like a, a new use case started to emerge. And that was only like by the end of, that was it's very tightly related to the release of, of um, ChatGPT and the grown interest in generative models. And that was that the vector database was starting to play a role in, in harmony with the generative models. So that basically meant, and everybody who's used the generative model now, especially if you, for example, use you know, like something like ChatGPT, is that sometimes the models, you know, I'm trained in 2021, so I can't answer that question or that I don't know anything about what you're asking me. And of course, what people want to build are these kind of systems based on their own data. And that that is where something, something called RAC so started to play a role where you actually basically say, okay, we're going to inject information in the model. And we have like a primitive form of, of, of rec, and that's like what you basically inject it in the prompt. But there are also more novel ways of doing that. So all of a sudden, besides these use cases of like better search, better recommendation, now all of a sudden this new use case emerged. And that was that you could start to use the vector database basically to make the, the model stateful with your own data, right? So you could just store or delete and update your own data and use all that niceness from these generative models. So that was what happened. And it's actually all pretty recently. And that is kind of what's that combination of all these things together. That was like a perfect storm on, on which everybody is now building. And what you're doing is a great example of that, right? So it's a, uh, that's an example of such an application. So a lot of people are trying it out, kicking tires, using open source, some use paid service, you know, whatever they, they need to get their stuff done. And, but we also see now the first big ones going to production. And that's, of course, uh, that is very exciting that we know that actually, and, you know, end customers, they, that like, and that goes in the many, many thousands of end customers actually, you know, get access to these, to these tools. And that's like, you know, that's super exciting. I guess maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you've seen in terms of adoption, you know, obviously 
good timing, you know, with OpenAI releasing ChatGPT. Did you did you did you feel like you knew it was coming, or you just got lucky and it was just perfect timing with you know the big launch with Weaviate and and all no, that, you know tied together? That was just that was all just perfect storm. I think what's important to bear in mind is that these models that were used for for these generative purposes they already existed. It's not it's not that something new came with that, right? So. We could already see the signs of something like this coming, but the question was, what will the application be that is the big eye opener, right? So how, right. what will happen in the world that people go like, oh, now we see, right? right? And because we need to bear in mind that the that so for example, I'm you know I run an infrastructure company, so the world where we where we live, right, is that's like with with developers and and techies and 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 researchers and you know hackers, those kind of people. So um, these people, they kind of saw that, but they were also inside organizations. They were trying to show what the value was, right? So so they, they tried to figure it out and show like, you know, also senior management and stuff in organizations, like <laughs> look at what the value is that we're getting here. And it was sometimes still a tough sell. So the better search, better recommendation was, that was kind of okay to do, but really that new thing that was hard. And then, because of that launch of ChatGPT, it was just the eye opener that just, let's call them normal <laughs> business people, that they're like, oh, now we see, now we see what this could. Everybody mean could us. see, even the non non geek, the non geek uh, people could could see yes, it in front of them. So. Exactly. Democratizing exactly. it right for everybody. That yes. that's you know exactly. pretty rare, right? I mean, most technology innovation takes you know five, 10 years to, to even get to the hands of everybody. But now GPT was able to really do that. And that's awesome, you know, for OpenAI and for the rest of the industry. So yeah. when you look at the adoption now, right, you said finally some teams are, are moving to production and doing some real volume and, and good, you know, good engagement. What kind of company or at least sectors do you feel like are leading with the adoption of, of generative AI today? Yeah, so that the answer to this question is going to be a little bit of a cliche answer, but it's just it's the truth. So the the first adopters are actually the tech companies, right? So those are companies in so one of the upsides that you have as, as being an infrastructure company like we are is that anybody can be your customer. Right. Right. So it, not it's not a we're not competing with them. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So so you kind of so it doesn't matter if it's in banking, in publishing, whatever, right? So it's more the persona in these organizations that you focus on. But the industry that we saw go first were like the, the tech, you know, was the tech industry. So, for example, I don't know, tech companies focusing on the insurance vertical, tech companies focusing on publishing, those kind of, so those very tech-savvy companies or companies that were basically making their, you know, their living of selling high tech in a certain vertical, that's what we saw first. And that is a, and I think that makes it, that kind of makes a lot of sense because bear in mind that related to that, that remark that I just made about ChatGPT, I think also people were, I think like, oh boy, you know, we've been working for years on something, right? So for years on this, we're working now there's this new paradigm, right? Right. That I'm presents really itself. everything they've done. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So they have to, they have to move fast and they need the tooling to achieve that. Right? So that is, that is something that I see the most. Mm. And beyond the, the tech guys, who do you think? Would you say all the the quick next you know followers? Are you seeing stuff in in banking or the financial industry? Where else do you see momentum? I guess. I think I'm happily surprised that I I so what have I seen recently? I've seen recently like retailers, e-commerce, wholesale, those kind of things. 
I've seen banking, of course, insurance, because insurance yeah. is, is very important because the the large language models, of course, you know, in insurance and publishing, of course. I've seen the first, and I have to admit that I'm not sure yet what the, the exact use case are because I just very recently thought, but I started to see the first gaming mm. use case as well. So I was ah. very intrigued by that because you know that just certain things that you have like a feeling like this can be big, for example, in gaming. And then you sure. just want to know like, oh, what game company going to do something, kind of right? Yeah, and and you try to educate the market, you try to help the market, but you know it's they need to they need to see the light. But bear in mind that all, especially of course most of the models are large language models. So companies that are very heavy on language, they tend to right. move first. Sure, and you know obviously we're pretty big as age in, in government, but also in financial yeah. industry now. We we signed up forty five hundred government teams and. 950 companies, you know, in three months, which is pretty amazing. Who else do you see? Do you see any other activity on the government side with maybe with other governments than what we did with SAGE? Yeah. So, so, so I'm, I'm from, I'm Dutch. So I think very logically we saw like the, the, right. the, the Dutch, the Dutch government, right? They been work was that was more in the, it was on the side of economic affairs again, which mm. kind of makes sense because they just a lot of text. But we also, you know, we all spoke with people in the on the on the side of the US. So it's like it's in in the government. So it's very interesting. I think what's interesting to bear in mind, in specifically when you talk about government, is that if you have piece of infrastructure like a database, back in the day, you just had a database, and then you needed to, you know, support certain things to, you know, support the government use case, as you said earlier. What's interesting is that there's now for these use cases a second thing added to the mix, and that's the model. Right. So right. no, no model. There's no use for a vector database if you don't have a machine. Right. You can't do much without the model. That's right. Exactly. So, so a lot of questions, and this is, I think this is also, you know, the, an obvious sense, but the questions are like, so where does the software run? How do we integrate with the models? Where are these right. models coming from? Those kind of things. So those kind of questions we, we, we get a lot, but you know, we're like, we're early in that journey, but it's super excited to see that as well. It's very cool. Yeah. No doubt. All right. So. Let's, you know, for people that don't really understand much about the topic, let's set the stage, you know, with the basics, right? And so let's look first at what is a vector, right? Let's start there and then we, we can go to the more complex stuff. Yeah, so so a vector is a, the easiest way to think about it, I like to, I like to explain this in metaphors because then it's easier for people to, to visualize, if you will, is think about a representation in, in space. So for example, if you get a map, Right, so that can be. I'm currently. I'm now in New York. So if you look at a at a map of New York, right, then and you want to move from one street to another, you do that in two dimensions, right? So things are placed in a dimensional space. And if you go to a supermarket, for example, you are in a three dimensional space. And basically, what the embeddings do that the machine learning models generate is that they, based on the data that they're trained on, is that they place things in relation. To each other in that space so a way to think about it is that for example if you have a, a word for example if you think about it from the perspective of words if you have a word like apple then that's more closely related in that space to like fruit and banana than it is to for example i don't know car right because a car is something completely different so what we can do, we can also, by the way, not only do that with text, but you can also do it with images and audio and those kind of things. So what the vector does is that it gives a, a representation in space. And now the thing is, as you also know from, so back to my city example, is 
if I meet somebody and I look at a t 2D map, then I can get to the location or street where I need to be. But if I have to go up, right, I need to have a third dimension. So I need to know where to go. And these vector embeddings, so they're often not two-dimensional and also, also often, or not often, all, almost all cases, not two-dimensional, three-dimensional, because we cannot you know, contain enough information in just two or three dimensions. So they're often like, it starts often from like 90. And, and for example, 768 is a number that's seen a lot, or the OpenAI embeddings are 1530 something. <laughs> I, I'm 36, I think, or 38. And so what you basically do is that the, the more of these points you have in space, the more information you can capture. And that's what a vector is. So it's a it's a data type. It's a new data type that we have in databases. Next, like um, text, numbers, integers, those kind of things. We now have the data type of the vector embedding. And you know, with a new data type, you see you know new new databases. So that's uh, that's what a vector is. And that makes sense. So now we have kind of the basics, right? So okay, these vector you know used to empower you know, LLMs and augment data, right, from the enterprise. And then you, when you think about it, you know, what's the difference between the vector AI model and the generative AI model? Yeah, so it is basically what comes out of the model. I mean, also what goes in, but mostly what comes out. So if we have like, you have all kinds of models that do things, but once that we come and see is like, for example, you have the type of model, we call it a, like a vectorization model. And what it basically does, you can give it, for example, text, or you can give it an image, or you can give it audio, and it turns it into that vector representation. So if if I take the sentence, eh, for example, in the nick of time, I can give that to the model, but what comes out of the, the vector model is that vector representation that we can store. The generative AI model, though, is, and what's in the name, it generates something. So often, so eh, as we talk about like, the GPT kind of applications. In this case, it generates text. So word after word after word. But bear in mind, text is just a use case. It can also be an image or it can also be audio or those kind of things. So often for these, what we call Gen AI use cases is that they both work with each other in harmony. So you use the, the first model to, to factorize the content to store in the database. And you use the other model, for example, to create an interactive engine or generate something based of the data that you're retrieving from the database. So that's the difference between these types of models. It's often not one model. It's like multiple models that, that do that and they work in harmony with each other. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so now, you know, you're ingesting data, right? You have this uh, vector database of your contents, right? So you have the plain texting, you know, version, then you have the vectors. The vectors now, you know, you can use that, right, to query against your database to extract results that would be relevant to the prompt or to the discussion by using different ways, right, to to effectively select the matches. So, so when you think about that, right, you guys bring a, a lot of features, right, into Weaviate to effectively help the teams decide which one to, you know, let's say you have a thousand entries, you're not going to pass you know, a thousand entries to your prompt, you want to, you know, based on the token context limitation and stuff, you, you may, you know, pass two, three, four, five at best. So how do you think about, you know, kind of querying the data, database and extracting the relevant information and how, how do you guys do that? Yeah. So this is a, 
thank you for this. This is an excellent question because the thing is this. So what we've learned in 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 practice is that from the vector database perspective, doing pure vector search alone. So what we mean with that is just you know you have all these embeddings and then you might generate another embedding and then you do similarity search to say like okay these are for example if you have 10 million documents and you have a question say okay what are the top five documents that i need or which documents contain the answer to my to my question we've learned that in the majority of situations pure vector search alone is not enough so doing it in combination with more traditional keyword search functions, for example. Think about if you, for example, have a very specific name or you have an internal product or project name, then you know you probably want to match that based on a more on a keyword-based matching. And that is what we call hybrid search. So where you basically mix these things together. And we believe from the perspective of EVA that we just need to do that under one roof. Another example is filtering. So sometimes there are situations where let's say that you store products. So you might have a query where you say, okay, I want to do a vector search on, I don't know, Nike shoes for the summer, right? That's a, that's a beautiful example of like a vector search question. But you said, okay, they need to be, I don't know, less than 150 bucks. That's a filter that you said. So we know from, from how people use the database that they want to mix these more traditional filters with these modern vector search capabilities and that's what's coming out of the database and then so that means that if you have a generative ai use case basically what you do you need to if if it's a naive rack thing so we want to inject something in the model then sorry in the prompt of the model then we somehow need to collect the right documents from the database and you want to do it in a combination or by using hybrid search so that's an example of that yeah that's exactly how we do it. In fact, you know, we actually found that we're doing it both by similarities and hybrid search, and then we compile the two results, yeah. aggregate, and use that as a as a you know final thing. And then we also have you know Bing and, and Google as additional items we add to the to the pie when we do you know live live queries. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So maybe so if we if we quickly if I may if we quickly double click on that. On that 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 rack form, so that that's the abbreviation stands for retrieval augmented generation. So what you basically so you do generation. So if you look at it in reverse order, right? So it's we do generation, but it's augmented by retrieving something. So the what you just said that is the retrieval part. So we need to tell the generative model what it needs to be based on, right? So so we ask it a right. question. And it will tell you, base it on the following information that we're giving you. That's the retrieval part. And that is something um, uh, uh, that, you know, that's being solved in these types of integrates exactly like what you're doing. But again, I, I can't stress this enough. Pure similarity search to do the retrieval right is often not enough. The power sits in the combination. Right. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. Sometimes you don't really know why, but, you know, in terms of, the same query or very similar queries, you would think you would get similar results, but you know, hybrid sometimes gets you better results and sometimes similarity gets you also better results. So we ended up saying, you know, why would I do both and <laughs> aggregate that, use that as a compounded result. And, you know, for people that really, you know, need to understand the issue with the LLMs, right? Being pre-trained and having pre-biased and, and existing knowledge, right? If you want to override that and the knowledge you want to pass into the prompt, right? These embeddings and these, 
this data to to help the bot make make uh, effectively the LLM make make better, you know, uh, better information, right? And so, if if I ask you know who I am and I give my bio, so it's going to do a pretty good job summarizing that, giving you that insight. Now, you know, what's interesting mm -hmm. is is where let's say you have a database of resumes, right? You have you have five hundred resumes, right? If you ask, you know who is Bob, it's going to do a pretty good job because, you know, Bob, there's so many Bobs and he's going to extract the top, you know, the top five or whatnot. And then you're going to give that and he's going to be able to give your bio. But now if you were to ask, you know, how many, how many developers code in Python and you have, you know, 500 of them, that's a whole nightmare because now, you know, first you couldn't just extract the, the 500 resumes and give that to to the to the prompt because it's going to go above your your context limitation there of tokens so so we had to build a lot of you know features to enable that also tapping into databases apis and other things what do you feel like is the future these kind of use cases where you would have to ingest the data in a different way or you know or do like almost like a an aggregate query or something where it gets a little bit more complex and you know just using similarity or or hybrid hybrid search what could be the solution when it comes to really extracting you know if i want to know count of how many i have right you know of python developers so this is this is a this is a, another great question so the so the question of what i th think or hope that the future is 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 this so currently the information that we get from, if you purely use a generative model, then the data that we're getting and the knowledge that we're getting is from the from the model itself, right? So now we have like, we have a problem. So I always like to refer to that problem like that. I say the model is stateless, so it doesn't contain state. And so the database is a way to bring state to the model. There are two things here. So the first thing is, and I'll, I'll get to your second question through this, right? So the first thing is this. The if well, the models are very big, right? And it takes a lot of time to do inference on them, right? So in production, that's sometimes, you know, problematic. So the thing is like, well, if we don't need to model anymore for its knowledge, we just need it for its, for example, language understanding, right? We can compress a lot of things, right? So you, the model becomes smaller. A lot of research is happening in that space and are even I've seen some startups of which I believe that, that, that some are still in stealth, but that what I believe that they that they are working on, which is very exciting for customers, right? Because and users, because then they they know that it becomes easier to operate these these models. Because now we're just gonna say the models is gonna say, like, I want something from the database. The database does its its effect assert and it returns that information back to me. So that's that's one thing. The second just thing to quote you on, a, on a second, right? Yeah. It's also a point, right? When I compare, you know, open source models that don't have the same volume of knowledge than, you know, ChatGPT Ch three, five, or four, for example, the model, like you said, might be capable of doing summarization, extraction, you know, all these different kind of features, right? They don't have the same knowledge. You can augment the knowledge by bringing on data. That's a lot of work, and you also need to stop predicting what people are going to start asking, right? And of course, maybe you know what they're going to be asking, or maybe you don't. But I always felt like, well, the reason why ChatGPT was so successful is because it could answer anything. You know, number one, number two. The other piece of that is it's easier to add the delta, right? Than rehab to train also the basics of life. You know, so there's a balance there, and I see the value of open source models and I think it's going to grow and get better. And, you know, 
and it's great to be able to start with a smaller GPU and not a need to spend you know hundreds of millions to train train all this stuff. And I love it. But I also you know counter that with like okay, there's also a lot of good to have a great model that you don't have to train on everything for it to be able to also sometimes come up to conclusion that maybe you would not be able to get to without the existing knowledge plus your data, you know, enterprise data on top of it, right? There's kind of a balance there between the two. Yes. So let me let me let me try to give a metaphor for this, right? So I, I have a metaphor that I sometimes use to also make this make this points, right? So back in the day in the pre-internet era, right, a lot of families at home they had a they had an encyclopedia set, right? At home. So now you can do two things, right? So you can ask a human to just read from A to Z everything that's in the in the encyclopedia set and try to remember and as much as they can, which is a nice party trick because then people and you know they they know a lot of trivia and and they know a lot of stuff. Or you can take that human and say like we're gonna learn you how to as efficiently as possible use the index that's in the in the in the back of the encyclopedias. Right. Yeah. So you just need to understand the question. So, for example, what's the distance between the moon and the earth? You just need to understand that question. And then you need to quickly go to like, okay, index moon. Okay. What's an, an earth distance, right? And you do the distance calculation. So now what that human needs to do in the, the brain capacity needed to get that question answered is far less than memorizing everything that's in that whole encyclopedia set, if that's even possible, right? So, right. What you then get is like the then the if now we bring that back to the models like you need you kind of can foresee a smaller model right that just parses the question and and says, understand that I need to figure stuff out related to the moon earth distance and I'm gonna look in the database right and I know how to ask that information from the database and how to ask that is in the form of these vector embeddings right so I know that the type of vector embedding that I need to send to the database to get an answer. So now to your question, if you have all these resumes and these kind of things, if you have a tiny model that just understands that question, it's like, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to ask it from the database, which is the encyclopedia set and return the answer. Then you get this very efficient way of working together. And if that's going to come from, uh, to be honest, I'm super agnostic from which model that comes. So that can be an open source model, that can be a closed source model, you know, whatever works for people. But I think that is that is a future we're going towards. So, 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 do you see in the example of counting resumes, right? Which is not just extracting, you know, your resume or my resume, right? It's really counting, let's say, how many Python developers we have, which you could do with a query, right? With Weaviate, there's that that query ability with, you know, GraphQL to write that query. Do you see the model writing the query? effectively and asking the question to the to the to the vector database is that how you you picture it in your head in terms of how the model would execute the task uh yes kind of so it's like a the, the 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 problem that needs to be resolved is like how can the model understand and parse the question right without having the answer to the question right 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 it doesn't have uh, the number, so but he knows he needs to count, right? So he needs to count, right? So he doesn't know the number, but he knows he needs to count. Yes, exactly. So it's just going to say like, okay, I understand. So if I, if you ask the model, okay, what's, what's two plus two, it needs to understand like, okay, I have a number and I need to add that to that other, to that other number. And I'm going to ask that from a different source. So currently the generative models, I mean, I don't know for all generative models, but the, especially the generative models that we can see. The reason that it answers two plus two is four is because somewhere on the internet in a text, they 
right. it read that, right? It because trained it was written there. So yeah. yeah, it was written there. It's trained. It's not. It's probably not doing two plus two itself. Right. Yeah. So if you if if you do, if you and I have to admit that I don't know with the with the latest models right now, but just you know the recent models or sort of if you ask them like what is like five thousand twelve on the thirty three plus right. and another random know. number, it's not gonna know. So, but what you but he knows how to code. Thing... But he knows how to code it, right? So often, what we yes. are doing is yes, coding it and then execute the code and get the re the response. That's right. Exactly, exactly. So you want the model to say, "Okay, I understand." I mean, I'm using I'm using language that we use as like for other humans, but for lack of a better terminology, you want the model to understand like, oh, the goal of this question is that it as like it wants to sum up two numbers. So it's just gonna right. say, you need to do something for me. Here you have a number, here you have another number, and sum them up for me. And then whatever answer it gets back, it will say, oh, you know, the sum of that plus that is that. So right, and it's not doing the math; can... it's just pulsing, pulsing yes. the, the the question, and and sending it to the right place to be executed and get the reply back without understanding of whether or not the answer will be right or not. Yeah, exactly. And just on a, if I may, as on a quick side note uh, that people might find this funny, there's, there are these questions that people ask to, to figure out how well that, uh, that the model is able to parse these kind of things. So you get questions like, I believe one question I recently heard is like, you have a room, you have a house with four rooms. Every room has three yellow walls and one white wall. And after three years, all white walls turned yellow as well. So after five years, how many yellow rooms are walls are there? Those kind of questions, those kind of questions, people ask the model to see how well it figures out these kind of things. And the latest models do pretty well, to be honest. But the problem there is that it has a lot of, it needs to store a lot of, uh, um, you know, knowledge in itself, if you will. So that's a, but there's a lot of research happening there. So it's, that is super exciting and it's going super fast because we should not forget the end goal. And the end goal is to, you know, to make sure that the, that the, that the users and the, and the customers get, get valuable insights. I think another upside of doing this with a database is that a question we get a lot is like, how do we know where it got the information from? Right. So how do we know right. that what it's saying? Where it's, well, if you have a database in the mix, that's very yeah, easy to say, this, this yeah, was a reference. reference. Right. Yes. Which so, is how yeah, we did it. Yeah. We were the first one to do this, I have to say, before everybody else and, and showing the WVA reference before ChatGPT and everybody else, even both references and Bing and, and whatnot. So completely, you know, yeah. it's, so you need to make sure it's not a black box. You know, that's so important. That's right. No, but you know what it is, Nick? It's like, a, I'm, so this is, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation. This is why I'm such a big believer in, in like open source, but also in making. I always try to ask people make stuff because uh, before you know it, you get into this very theoretical exercise of like, you know, how important you were just building, right, with your team. And you were at some point, you were like, oh, wait a second, people want to see the reference, right? So we're going to show yeah, them the reference. Right. And that is a, and I really believe in that that model of operating because it's just together, you have like this hive mind going we help each other when, when people like, hey, so it's always this, these things always come in waves. So when you, for right. example, mentioned that this was of importance, others started to mention that as well. So we're like, oh, sure. this is important. So let's help our users to do this. So That's right. that is kind of how that works. Yeah. So, you know, when you look back again at the example of, of counting resumes and not just extracting the, the five 
resume that matched closer to the uh, to the question, but really counting how many developers do Python, right? Would you see people using effectively, you know, something like GPT-4 to generate the GraphQL query to then query VBA, get the, re the response back? I mean, we do some of that here at, at SAGE to go beyond the similarities and, and the, uh, you know, the hybrid search. And we do it also with, with you know, another example is Postgres or, or Elastic. You know, we have integrations with Postgres or Elastic, whatever, right? And you can, so when you ask a question to the bot, what we do is is effectively ask the bot to, to convert the plain text question to a SQL query. If the SQL query doesn't work, we make itself reflect on its mistake and it fixes its own mistake with the error message. Usually it's able to fix that mistake and fix the query, then run the query, get the response back. Do you see people also doing that in like the counting use cases, aggregation stuff, right? With GraphQL, you know, VVA queries? Oh, yes, absolutely. But I think that we even already see the, the next generation on top of that as well. And that is so, to take your example, is that let's say that you, you said like Python, but let's say that we have TypeScript, right? So for those who are listening who don't know, so TypeScript is like a static type, I guess, of JavaScript. It's big Java. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, probably yeah, exactly. Java better, but that's okay. Exactly. Well, so let's say that you have like all these resumes and all these resumes, they, they have or Python developers or uh, Java developers or JavaScript developers, right? So now you ask your first question and you say, okay, we're looking for people who can write, you know, TypeScript. And the database says, Sira. There's just nobody who does TypeScript. So then the next question you want to ask, like, okay, so who could we ask to help us with TypeScript? And if you know, if the model knows that TypeScript is like a, a static type of JavaScript, then it might say, well, we don't have any TypeScript people, but we have JavaScript people. Right. Probably easiest for them to learn TypeScript. And that's where it becomes very interesting. And this is what I mean with the paradigm shift that's happening right now. We are so used to... To, to even if we use Google search that we use like keyword-based kind of searches to match on that, that right. we really can go to a conversational style with our database so that we can ask the database, figure out for me, you know, who should we approach about this TypeScript question because there are zero TypeScript resumes. But see, that's a great example because you just proved that, you know, you would probably not have trained as a company, you would probably not have trained a model to teach it that TypeScript is derived, you know, from JavaScript, but yet the model knew that, so it happened because it, it learned it from the internet or whatnot. Then it would make that connection that it would not have made if you didn't, you know, if you didn't know that. And so that, that's kind of proved my point also in the fact that sometimes it's good to have a model that's broader than you think you need because it's going to be able to, to find relationship between things that, you know, you didn't even think of training it to do, right? Exactly, exactly. And that is kind of the, that's the powerful thing. And so what you want to get to is that the model goes like, okay, I understand the question. So let me figure out what actually the difference is between JavaScript, Python, and Java. And let me see how we, how they relate to TypeScript. Right. And then it asks the question like, okay, so I now figured out that that's probably JavaScript. Okay, let's now query the database with another query where we say, okay, show me things related to uh, Usually that's a chain uh, of queries, right? So people understand it's not going to make do that in one go. It's going to cut the, into tasks and, and then, you know, do different steps and, and 
kind of come to that conclusion, right? It's not a one one step thing. Yes, and I think yes, exactly. This is very important. So it's it's a multi step pipeline, right? And and one thing that I've been super impressed with when it comes to the models is that the sophistication, right? So let, if we stay stay with our example, right, with our metaphor, is that the situation where you go like, let's say that it now finds JavaScript developers for TypeScript, but it has one JavaScript developer that writes, I don't know, C++, then it can say like, well, then we have this JavaScript developer who also knows another static language, right? So this person also knows a C++, so probably you want to reach out to this person. And it's, it's pretty sophisticated in those kind of things. And I've been very impressed by that. I was I was not expecting that it would be so so rapidly so good. You have a have a lot of fear when it comes to security, right? Because we're delegating tasks to models with very little transparency in terms of what they're going to do and what kind of conclusion they're going to come up with. Um, what's your fear in terms of you know, like you look at AutoGPT and some of these tools, they're starting to really enable people to you know write code in Python and execute the code with zero check on the code, you know, bash scripts, you name it, right? What's your take on, on the lack of, of security? So this, this is a good question. So, so let me think, what is my take on that? So, I mean, I'm not sure that it's very different than a human developer. So, so let's, let's, so if we have in the team, we have like, we have human developers, right? Who write codes for Reviate. So when they make that code, that goes into a CI pipeline, right? So the pipeline just checks, like, you know, is it adhering to all standards? Didn't, didn't it break anything, et cetera, et cetera. I don't see why something like AutoGPT couldn't do that too, right? So- Oh, sure. If, they don't do it. it. To be clear, they have no checks right now on the, the code base. That's, you know, that's sure, 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 sure. But, but that, is like a, that is like a thing that if you would hire a human developer, so, for example, if you hire a human developer being as a, to work on a government project, I mean, I have some friends who do that. They get a lot of background checks, you know, before they <laughs> before they allowed to 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 write that, that single line of code. You can do that for these automated things as well, right? right? So it's like, okay, what's the? But, but it's just the, a different you type of Yes, my question is more about the fact that it seems you know open source projects in AI particularly seem to forget about cyber. And they give away these tools and everybody can go and download, you know, AutoGPT and all these tools and they zero security in it and done tons of CVs. They let the bot write code and, and execute the code with zero checks whatsoever, no pipeline, no nothing. Don't you think there's a kind of a lack of awareness of cyber awareness when it comes to the AI community to do better at at least warning people like, hey, this, this bot can generate any code and we're going to execute that in this sandbox containerized thing and we don't do any check on what it's going to run. I think that's, you know, that should be, I mean, that's pretty scary to me. I don't know. No, no, no. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm just saying that's the same thing for, uh, for human developers. Right. So sure. this morning, this morning, purely by coincidence, I couldn't use my banking app hmm. and that somehow makes me nervous because I work in tech. Right. <laughs> so Know what I mean? It's like a yeah. there was probably a human deployment that somewhere did something wrong in that right. deployment, and therefore I could. I mean, your like, money was gone. gone. Your money was gone. That's right. Say so. Back in the, the early days of, I've, I've, I remember that. So obviously, I was an early adopter of, you know, switching to to like having the app my bank for my bank, the app on my phone, etc. I remember in the very early days that sometimes you just opened 
like your account and it said zero and i was like why and then i was like oh sorry it was a mistake it's back <laughs> exactly right. and and the so so the point that i'm trying to make is i am not disagreeing with you that there should be some form of like you know checks and and balance and those it's kind of things security baked in security it, it is just it's just but we need it in humans too <laughs> that's my point right Guess my fear is, you know, these tools are widely available, including in the hands of non-coders, and I'm just afraid that uh, people are not paying attention to it. And it's great; it's going to create a wave of of cyber issues, which will in turn impact the trust to the industry when it comes to generative AI, right? Because if there's some massive cyber event, and let's say someone ends up using AutoGPT to start writing malware, which you know people can do. And and obviously there's zero checks and no balances and yes my fear is the ripple effect of that to the industry but yeah your point there if flip it if I may flip the argument though it's like it's also a huge business opportunity right so that That's, oh yeah uh, no, security uh, tools for for you know for hundred percent uh, in fact you know I like to always think about the pros and that's my business brain you know that's why I founded uh, thirteen companies I guess but is I always think of that first. Doesn't mean, you know, doesn't mean I don't know what others are going to do to create issues, but you know, that's also my cyber brain, I guess. But when you, when you, you know, you mentioned before, right, that the machine learning models are stateless. That's important, right? You know, people were worried about, you know, ChatGPT ingesting their data, which, you know, I, you know, these, obviously when you don't pay, OpenAI has that policy to say, you know, everything you type effectively gets, you know, potentially later on fine-tuned into the next generation of the models. So first, can you clarify what you mean by by stateless? Yes. So this was something that concept that popped into my mind. I was coincidentally with a I had a conversation with actually with a with a with a U.S. official actually, who asked me a couple of questions about these kind of things, and and she asked me a question, and it just this popped into my mind that I said the, I said the the model is in tech sorry in technology we use terminology like technology is stateful or it's stateless. So an example of something that's stateless is an MP3 file, right? So if I have like an MP3 file of my favorite artist, and copy paste that so just do command c command v and i send it to you or i just email it to you uh, nick then we both have these stateless mp3 files they create value i enjoy the music you enjoy the music but it doesn't per se mean that it changes or that we can both from a business perspective can capture value twice from the model on the other hand we have stateful things right so we have i don't know if you take word for example and you write a letter and you save the letter and you open the letter again then it keeps state. So it shows you the letter, right? So, and that's for you a different letter than it, than it shows for me. Now, the, the, the models are stateless. So that means that the moment that they're done training, they're not changing anymore. This is why you see, if you that's ask it like- time. That's back in time. Yes. So if you say, you know, who's the current, you know, president of the US, and if it's like trained after before that there was a change in officials, then the model doesn't know it will give the wrong answer because it had that cutoff time because it is stateless. So that is what I mean with the models being stateless. And the vector databases, they bring state to the models. But why it's important, I think, is that if a lot of questions now being asked, like how will the models develop, how will the vector databases develop? And that I think if you look back at history, how technology 
has been developing, technology being stateless has been developing, and technology is being stateful has been developing, that's different. So I think, for example, I, the reason I took MP3s as an example is that if you look at everything that happened when music got digitized, you know, the how the uh, the, uh, the 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 how do you call it the the music producers etc how they got like very nervous about this i think the same thing is going to happen for the businesses around uh, the models right so you, you need to find out for stateful businesses the business model is different for stateless businesses right so right. that's why i use that that terminology so and it's interesting that the model is stateless right it doesn't keep state yeah no sorry so you know we talk about i guess using you know something like weaviate to to bring data enterprise data right to those models to start augmenting the knowledge on top of the model without fine-tuning the models which you know again if you fine-tune data into a model then you cannot control who gets to see what and how and you don't you know you don't really know it becomes kind of this black box in a sense and you lose kind of the ability ready to bring the references and all the stuff we talked about so you know what we do here at Assage is we use WeVA as an embeddings to train data on top, and then you know we can control with labels the, the the data, and we can say you know this user has access to this label, that user doesn't, so he doesn't get to see this WeVA object here, but he's going to see this one instead. So you know we had to build a whole label-based access control stack around WeVA to be able to enable labels of the data and then label users so they have access to, to the to the right data set. So how, how do you bring, I guess, what else could you do to do that securely and, and what did we miss? So uh, so what, what you do, so what's interesting about the word secure, of course, is that underlying on doing something securely is trust. And what might be interesting is that it's actually a great place where open source is helping. So because the thing is basically you can you can see what you're adopting, right? So you see what it actually, it's like opening the hood of buying a new car, right? So you see what's under right. the hood. And look, okay, I trust this car. I think this car is gonna solve the problem that I have. Um, and then you bring it inside your secure environment. So now today, that's often the, the virtual private cloud with one of the hyperscalers. I mean, you still, of course, have like the very traditional on-prem, but of course that's getting more and more inside the, the virtual private cloud. So to answer your question or the question that's on the, on the screen. I think that's a mixture of what people love about SaaS. So the easy to useness of like SaaS, but doing that hybrid inside their virtual private cloud. Right. So we, we call that hybrid SaaS, right? Yeah. Oh, is that how you call it? So I always, you know, we need a new name and we need a name for that. I don't know if hybrid SaaS is, is the name, but at least for people that, you know, that's actually how government will consume most software, in fact. Right, because they want the SaaS experience, but they want it hosted on their Kubernetes cluster inside of some government GovCloud enclave. And yeah. so that's what you're talking about is delivering effectively containers or something like that, Helm charts and whatever, you know, orchestration stuff inside of the customer enclave so that the customer has full single tenancy control of that enclave. But yeah, it still gets the software as a SaaS offering in terms of the billing and the support and all that kind of stuff. Yes, yes. And and this is, again, also the nice thing where the open source plays a role, because rather than saying, okay, so for example, as you said, like in, in GovCloud, right, rather than say, okay, here you have this black box that you can deploy inside your, your GovCloud, we're going to say, no, 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 this is what you're getting. It's open source. The whole world can see it. 
and now we're going to package it up for you and you can deploy that securely in inside your golf cloud so and that is what there's a trust element around security that i'm a big believer in so someone was asking a question i'm going to bring it up now because it kind of makes sense you know and i guess it goes back to misunderstanding of all you know open source and how open source company can even survive and, and some do well and some don't you know you've seen docker for example struggle compared to what they could have done you know i guess someone is asking you know once someone buys your your product how is it going how are you going to keep getting more income from those customers to support your business but you know maybe you know that person doesn't even understand that effectively your product is open source they don't have to buy it to start using it so so it's even more complex right so how do you convince someone to take this open source product and not just use it without paying you yeah so so the the uh, this is a great question and if i if i might alter the question a little bit to capture also what you're saying nick is the because the, the answer to this question is actually pretty straightforward right so it's a recurring model right so people they don't pay in one-off price they pay on a monthly right. basis as long as usage base so as long as they use it right and how much they use it so that's that's how they do it yeah, in fact but, share a little bit also how you 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 price yeah it. yeah so so we have fully usage-based pricing for our SaaS. And we're a young company, so we're also experimenting like in how we do that. But what I do find very important is that pricing is fair. So that means that people that they pay for what they use, right? So I'm not gonna charge a startup when I'm you know that just has a hundred data objects. I mean that's a little that's not a good example, but like a ten thousand data objects and low, you know, security requirements for that matter, or not as a startup often not requirement at all, versus well, for example, a government use case with, 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 with billions of data objects with very high sure. security standard, right? So that's a completely different way of, of, of pricing and doing those kind of things. So, but I think what's, so, so the answer to that is that it's full usage-based priced. But if you tie that to the open source, is that, um, you know, if people and, use- and, open... and just to be clear, do, yeah. do you tie it to the, to the objects? Is that how the price point? is driven the volume of objects or the instances or what it, because there's so many different ways to do volume so what a kind of volume yeah, are you so driving have, the price yeah from? so our SaaS offering is based on volume of of data objects and and nowadays we also have the factory embedding in there but that's because of innovations in reviate that's probably going to go away so just on the amount of data objects that you have so the more data you store and query the, the more you pay basically for our yep. hybrid SaaS, that's done around the metric of memory and, and CPUs that people uh, leverage. So the bigger use case, the bigger machines you need, and then- So it could be the more... same instance running, it's just getting beefier, and yes. because of volume of consumption and do you pay by CPU or memory or both, I guess? Well, both, how, what's both, the... both, okay. both, yeah, it's a mixture of both. And, and the thing is, what's interesting here is the, and then again, the role of open source is that, you know, a lot of people, if they just, you know, are happy using open source because they have a small use case or those kind of things, that's fine. And, and because it's just, you know, it's like they give us feedback or they help us, or sometimes you don't hear anything from them at all. And they just happy users. That's also fine. So life of open source, I'm afraid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. So I am not, I'm not sure if I agree with the, with the, I'm afraid part of that. I think it's a beautiful model, right? It's a way. Right, just, right, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just what it is, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, it's like, you know, if I, if I, if I buy a bottle of, you know, perfume, I always get a few testers. So. I don't have to pay for the for the testers, right? So, and then if I like one, I might buy a bottle, right? So it's a very organic way of doing business, right? Because right. some people are like, "Hey, we tried out the open source, we like it, it's great, but now we want to go to production, 
we want to have the right right agreements and those kind of things. So that's like it's a very organic. So really, way it's a super cool model, right? Just like a Red Hat kind of model, where where effectively people would pay ready for the support, right? Yeah, and then the better you get as a company, so that is basically what our the proprietary piece of technology that we have is the operationalization of the database. So right. the day we, one and day two yeah. hosting of the stuff. We are better at doing that than sure. uh, than you. And we take that off your plate. So you just don't have to care right. about it. You right? provide the full day one, yes. day two support of the, yes. the stuff. Yes. But you're not doing like some companies, which I kind of hate, you know, we are pretending to be open source companies and keep adding pretty much critical features like ICAM and, you know, SAML and, and basic things as a paid feature that is closed source on top of open source. They call it cost, right? Commercial of the shelf commercial open source software, which is a scam for cuts because really, you know, most enterprise will need SAML and, and all these basic features they are putting as, as a paid closed source feature. So you're not yet you know, doing any of that stuff in terms of like, you know, adding, having features that are not open source other so, than the orchestration stuff, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, we don't do that. I think it's a, it really depends also on your business because I do appreciate the fact that somebody wants to make money in their business. <laughs> yeah. Right. Then just, uh, just on it, just call yourself a cut. I don't know. Yeah, yeah no, no. And that, that is something <laughs> you know, that is you just that like, is don't hide that... behind open tools and be like, we're open tools, but not already, yeah. but we are, you know, just, I'm, no, by the way, that no. stage is closed tools. We're not open tools. I own it. I'm not pretending we're something else, you know? No, no, so, no, no, but exactly. You're no, real, I... you're real open tools. You're real, you're yes. the real deal. Yeah, but it's it's super simple because it's like if you just go to it's just an open source the open source i think it's just open source.org or something it's just very mm -hmm. clear if the software has license x it's open source it has <laughs> license y it's not it's like a it's there's no there's not much right. to debate. and to be honest nick i mean it's you know it's it's a free country right so people can 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 use any license that they want i That's just right. i'm with you that i appreciate it if people are just very clear at what they're what they're what the model transparency is, is good right yes 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 so effectively your bet is you know to answer the user question is well you know if, if we if we build a good open source product people are going to want to use it in production and most people are going to want some some support and we're going to be there to do that as a recurring you know revenue to support the the product so but also the just the the operations right so just making sure that right. the thing is yeah. running and yeah and, and running it and yeah. and you know Yep. Making sure that even even if it's yep. on your hybrid SaaS, you still can provide the support, you know, for people to to have it yep. up and running and with the right SLA and and all that stuff. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So now you know, obviously, you're air gap ready. That's why we picked you, right? Why did you feel like you know a lot of you know you look at Pinecone and all these guys, right? The SaaS only. You know, they have no interest, you know, although they just announced, you know, an Azure uh, marketplace offering, but, you know, they, they really have no easy way to instantiate a replica on a single tenant basis of, of Pinecone or whatnot, right? What made you, and I think, by the way, that's part on, right? Because the world is going to move to hybrid SaaS. I actually think SaaS is going to die with Kubernetes and containers. I think people, particularly, you know, big enterprise and stuff, maybe not the small, you know, tiny stuff, but the big stuff is going to be hybrid SaaS for everything, I think. So I think you did very well, but what drove you to make the decision? Because it's a lot of work, but it's it's not too much work too, if you do it right, which you did, you know, by containerizing and, and building your product the way you did, but what drove you to make the decision? So 
the, the answer is going to be surprisingly easy because customers ask, right? Did it's you like, think it's of like, it before? Did you, was it, you know, oh. did, when you, I mean, when you design it, it was containerized and, you know, easy to deploy. So it wasn't very hard, right? No, of course we, 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 I mean, so me and my girlfriend, we have like ours, also our backgrounds working, of course, in an enterprise software. So we kind of, we kind of knew that so that knew was it. an ask. So yeah, we kind of, but it was also, but but you're never 100% sure before like customers tell you and, yeah. and they do. And what I, to give a little bit more color to that answer. So what I absolutely agree on with you is that the state of the, of the cloud becomes, the state of the, of the cloud is becoming better, better and better to actually do these kind of things, right? So it becomes, it, it's still hard, but it becomes easier and easier over time to do these kind of things. And everything that we're driving is based on, on what you users ask, right? So a couple of years, uh, sorry, not years, a couple of months ago, all of a sudden people wanted to go to like the, the all of a sudden the billion skill was a thing multiple customers asked. At some point, some customers asked about like multi-tenancy. So we did that. Other customers asked about certain modules. So that is how we, keep developing all these kind of things inside the Weaviate, but all with that focus of being able to do that in the, uh, I mean, we also have SaaS, but there's a, sure. there's a direction you towards like, the hybrid SaaS. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Jared, who is working for Defense Unicorn, who is also using, uh, which, you know, you know, also using Weaviate and, you know, was asking actually about the multi-tenancy stuff, right? I missed that actually, so I'm not tracking that. Can you tell us a little bit about, so I guess a customer asks you for multi-tenancy, does that mean effectively on the single instance, you can now segment data in a different way than just maybe doing some schemas and objects and things? Yes, and and the reason, so thanks, Jared, for asking this question. The reason I, I had to smile when you popped this one up, one thing that we've learned is like these user and customer requests, they come in waves. So yeah. all of a sudden we had like all these people like upvoting and asking multi-tenancy. We we're like, okay, great. Thank you. Let's get it done. Right. Let's get it over with. So it's, 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 so the short answer to Gareth's question is yes. It's like in the latest version of Weaviate. And it's also, you can find the documentation how to, how to set it up. But this is, this is, well, this is exactly how it goes with the community, right? So people like Jared ask these kind of things we're like, okay, thank you. This is apparently a thing. We're going to make sure that it happens. So, and now to the second part of the, of the question. If it overlaps with his decision, uh, well, kinda. It kinda overlaps in the sense of like customers ask, like, can you run it inside the VPC? And then, then the answer to that question is yes. And then sometimes the next question is like, okay, but because it's very important that we can do that, that we have multi-tenancy features, backup features, etc. And then if there's a feature that we're missing or lacking, then we just make sure it gets built. It's just it's as simple as that to be honest. Right. And, and just to clarify, right, because I could already already do multi-tenancy before in a sense of doing schemas and filtering by, you know, creating a source type of, of doing something to to filter the objects, but it wasn't baked in, I guess, into the product. You, you could still cheat the product, I guess, and make it do multi-tenancy in some ways. But are you also saying it's also doing multi-tenancy on the management of the object and like creation, deletion and stuff like that now? So you can have different kind of schemas and, and everybody would not see the same schemas across the, the instance? Is that how this works, I guess? So it's like you set it indeed based on the on the schema. I have to say that I don't 
But you're asking is actually a very good question. How users see? I don't know that to be honest by by heart. So that's that's. But of course, that's in the in the. That's in okay. The we'll find but out. The, we'll look. We're gonna read the freaking manual. That's what we're gonna do. <laughs> yeah. No. But what's right. funny about this is that he, he learned. It, I actually have a funny war story about this because we learned about multi-tenancy. That so a couple of months ago, people were just so for just for those listening who don't know. So we've yet in we've yet to create like like create these classes. So you can say, for example, document or image and those kind of things, and then you add your data objects to it. And it's kind of a table. I mean, it's kind of a way of yeah. thinking of a table, you know, exactly. for, for that database, right? So. Yes. And in a couple of months ago, people were just storing just all their data just in one, right? So just, one, just yeah. one class or one table, as you said, so just one, right? Then all of a sudden, people were like, no, 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 no. We still have like maybe data set of a billion, but we just in small chunks, right? So we have these different classes or tables. And then we had a we had a customer who went viral. Their product went viral. So what they did is every time one of a customer signed up for them, they created a new created a new class, and those kind of things. And with them going viral, they had a problem with the database because we just had not seen that use case yet. So they screamed fire, <laughs> and we started to help out with that. So that's how we learned for the first case. That was the first case where we learned about how people wanted to use, also that's also important, multi-tenancy. GitHub issue was created, and all of a sudden we saw like all these companies and people up for, yeah, we need this, we need this, we need this. That's how we yeah. learn. So I don't know what the next thing is, but it, that's, again, the beauty of open source, people tell you what they need. And right. um, multi-tenancy is a great example of that. Yeah. You know, the way we, we ended up doing it is we, we do have more than one object, but but we do have a type field and that's mm. how we can, you know, filter. And then we have a data set where, you know, each user is controlling their data ownership of that object, and then can assign read-only rights to to other users, so that they are visible to others. So, now, you know, what can you say about the role of Weavey inside of this wider AI ecosystem? Is this just like this database? geeky thing that's going to connect a bunch of things and now you're also bringing bridges to embeddings and automation you know with a vector generation you know which at first i'm like why why am i going to use weva to generate my, my embeddings if i used to just do it directly you know with OpenAI or whatnot you know why do we need weva in the middle of this sounds like you know bloated or you know i mean there's concern of vendor lock-in or whatnot so so what do you see kind of limitation, you know, because everything can become bloated and you look at Langchain and it's, you know, 1200 CVEs and it's so bloated that, you know, Jared and I were talking about it. We don't want to use it because it's, it's so bloated. It's, it's insane, you know? So how do you control that blue and how do you say, okay, that's where we stop. That's where we start. That's where we bring value. How, how do you think about that? Yeah. So I think, so the, it's like, that's actually, that's a great question. So I think that the uh, there's so first of all the vector embedding is a new data type right so we have a database that deals with dealing with that data type right that's, that's it kind of makes sense to do it i agree i agree exactly so that's that's a very common thing but then the next question becomes okay so what do people expect from that database so for example you had before these databases started to emerge you had an an excellent facebook project right face which is just, there's some very high quality engineering in that in that piece of, of technology. But the thing is that it was, it's not a product, right? So it's a tool that Facebook open sourced that, that they use for their own needs. So yeah. people started to use it, but they started to ask questions, right? So, oh, can I also filter over this? Oh, can I also store my data object with it? Oh, can I do X, can I do Y? So 
And and what's interesting, for example, with, with Reviate is the modular ecosystem that we have. So you can bring your own embeddings. You, if you want to do that, that's fine. So you can just store your data object and bring your own embedding. But some people say, no, we prefer to use a module that does it for us. So they can be the PI module, the Cohere module, Transformer module, whatever they have, right? So you have optionality in using these these modules to do that. And I think that kind of captures the, you know, the, the range where we where we want to go. I think what's more important is the the use cases that we that we focus on. So I really think that's also what it says on our on our website. We use the term on our homepage. There's AI native, right? We I strongly believe that the, that this new paradigm of writing and creating technology with with AI, a, what we call AI enabled, by these factorization models, the the generative models. Uh, that new paradigm, we need to help people to give them the right tooling from an infrastructure perspective to work with that, and and everything that that's that's in there that that's contained in there. So so that that's that's how we look at it. So we don't go further than basically these modules. But for example, multi tenancy is a great example. So people ask for that. So that's a feature you add. I, yeah, I don't feel that. Yeah, I don't feel that's become good. I think your There's a lot of optional things that bring a lot of containers for different things. Yeah, and true. and it's starting to be. You know, healthy. I guess I'm gonna use the word. Healthy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, it's fair point. I'm just afraid if you keep going that that route too long, mm. it's gonna become tough, right? Not yeah. only to understand and and maintain, and I mean the helm, the charts itself um has so many parameters now because of these other, you know, modules, right? Which have to do with you know directly related to the product, and I get it. Uh, I'm just worried about adoption, I guess. But I guess that's where you you shine and income do it for people so you don't have to learn the the helm chart and you can do it for them yeah exactly exactly and i think so most people currently also just use it through through docker right so that's that's how they how they right. how they use it it's like it's interesting kubernetes is is interesting when it comes to that because operationalizing it is just that's just that's, that's how really, we yeah. do we, we on Kubernetes. Yeah. you know exactly. we're probably the first one of the first with you guys to uh, yeah. run it on azure you know and fix that that nightmare of azure no. But it's it's a good question, right? So it's like a, it's a the question is like how many dials and knobs do you want to make available? Right. That's uh, always that's a complex question, right? So healthy it's is even... fine. Beyond healthy is bloated. So you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Fair enough, fair enough. But it's like a, it's, and I don't think we will see a lot more when it comes to these the model providers, right? So I think that's also kind of we see now who the players in the field are. So that's, right. you know, that's yeah. I don't that, know though. These newcomers every freaking day. That's my fear. Is like, yeah, fair enough. Is that gonna stop? <laughs> and then how many are you gonna have to support? You know, when you decide to support one, you know, is just like okay, every if you if you have to support everybody, that could come out and and die within a year. You know, anyway, that's another whole discussion. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, it's just you know something to think about because it also increase your 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 attack surface and and the product you know flow and and all that. For cyber. Uh, so, you know, people are saying to say, well, you know, why don't you use Redis, right? I don't need Weaviate. Elastic is now bragging about vectors, you know, Redis, vector option stuff in there. Why do I need a vector database? Why can't I just use my Elastic stack? No, the thing is, you can, right? It's like a, I think the two parts of the answer here. So, uh, the vector embedding is a new data type. So, databases supporting that new data type, I think, is great. Right, so that just shows that there's a need for the database. Uh, sorry, for the data type. The thing stays that databases are good at specific. Uh, databases are good at different ways of performing 
you know, being operationalized. So like you have for different types of database, data types, specific built databases, we see the same thing with WeFit, right? So where you just basically say like, okay, you know, we have a, a database that's built around the, the vector embedding. That's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is like, the things that people built with VV8 are different, right? So it's like, for example, what you're working on, which you showed at the beginning, right, Nick? So these Gen AI-based applications where people feed stuff into the Gen AI models, where they interact with the models. We have something what we call like a generative feedback loops where you store data back into the database. So being a place where people go to build these AI native applications, I think that's that that is what makes us different, right? So that we see a lot of people build end-to-end -end things on top of with it because they think AI first, right? That is their way of thinking. They're not thinking of like enhancing something existing or those kind of things. So you just just talked about like uh, uh, like have bloated. So it's it's interesting. So if because the thing is this, Nick, if if a database provider adds a vector search to the to to their database, that has a huge impact. That means you have another index, you need to manage that index. And that index, that comes with certain trade-offs. So if you have a database that is good at doing something, but you add a index that might be a suboptimal combination of the two together, then you might potentially be shooting yourself in the foot, right? So in WeVH, you can do, technically speaking, you can do keyword search in WeVH. I'm not gonna tell people to do, if people have a keyword search use case, you know, use Solar or Elastic or open source, whatever, right? right. So you, it's you, a, you see what I mean? No, I mean, being specialized makes a lot of sense, right? And, you know, they will become bloated, of course. The other issue I, I guess I'm afraid about is, you know, a lot of people have to ingest data sitting in Elastic into EVA so that they can do generative AI steps. So now you're ingesting data twice. Does that make sense for an enterprise to have data in two different places? So I would argue no. So that is the reason why in WeFH you can store the complete data object like you would store it in, in Elastic or like you would store it in ODB, right? You store the complete data object with the vector embedding attached to it. There is a use case though where having the data in multiple places is actually, I would argue, good architectural choice. And that is often in combination with a data warehouse. So if you have right. a data warehouse where you say like, okay, we're going to store all all our historical data, everything that we have in there, right? We have a storage and compute separated for all the obvious reasons. Uh, so let's take, let's say that you're a huge wholesaler, right? Then you have like product catalog from day one, right? Which is huge. But for the e-commerce applications you have, you might not need all of that data. So then basically, so that's why we, for example, in WeVIT have the Spark connector so that people can right. make a Spark connection between the data warehouse and WeVIT, which is a very common pattern, right? So that is, uh, yeah, that's, that is a use case where I see multiple databases play a role in Harmony, which is actually also a very common use case. Here we go. Makes sense. All right. So we already answered this. So what is generative search? You kind of, you know, brought it up. What is it meaningful? What is it? Um, so, so generative search is, and we kind of already talked about this, right, is where you inject search results into the generative model. So, so that's the, a fancy the name for it. Yeah. So it's, so it's like, able to enterprise data and augmenting your prompt knowledge and the LLM knowledge. Yes. And where it's interesting, right? So where it's, where it's, where it's valuable is the fact that you can do stuff with it. So the most obvious use case is the chatbot case, 
but we also have on our website a blog post written by my colleague Connor, where we create, we call it generative feedback loops, where we have uh, just a public data set of Airbnb listings without a description. So what you do is basically you query over these descriptions and you basically say, okay, now generate a description for these, this listing and store that back in the database. So now you can do semantic search over these listings that were generated and not in the original data set. So those kind of use cases with generative search is something that I'm very, I'm very bullish on that. So that people start to build more and more of those kind of things. All right. So what's next? What was the next big thing? So I'm very much, I'm a big believer in the multimodal models, right? And, and how the world... what, what that means. So the, yeah. So if we, the most used models right now is large language models, right? So, and then the second L is language. And that's just one modality, right? Language. But we're seeing more and more models that just can ingest or output different modalities. So you can tell the model, okay, for example, a generative model, you can say, okay, uh, I want you to generate something that is text, or I want you to generate something that rich, or I want you to generate something that's a heat map or those kind of things. And that is something I'm super excited about. And that is also one of one of the things that I believe going back to what we said about uh, uh, with it, I believe that our users, they want to store the data object with that embedding. So to be prepared for multimodality, if someone says, okay, I just want to store an image, right? With the multimodal model, then we should be able to, to support storing that image, right? So you just have one place to go mm. rather than to go all these different databases, but all purposely built around the embedding. I think that's the most important thing. That's, that is the core focus. And then around that, you can store the data object and it can be text. Mostly it's now text today, but that can also be an image or an audio file. Right. So it could be binary, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's binary. Yeah. It can be binary. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So, you know, looking at this technology and you see a lot of people using it in many different ways, is it going to change the world or is it just a buzzword? Is it a gimmick? Well, is it going to stick when you think of generative AI? How much, how much impact is it going to have in the world? So, I mean, what is super interesting to see is that the, the models reach the tipping point from being like, oh, this is going to be something very cool. And at now this tipping point, like it's good enough, right? Where people say like, hey, we really, we can see the value and we can use it in our business, right? So I think that we're beyond this. So for example, what we saw with, uh, so for example, blockchain, for example, that was constantly struggling with like, what's that really that? really that use case that will take off, right? And that now has proven itself in, in, in Gen AI that, that's, that it's there, right? So to, to interact with these models. So, so now to ask the end with the last question, how do I see that change the world? Well, I see that in the form of that it's that paradigm shift, right? So it's a completely new paradigm to interact with the technology, to build new products, to build new solutions. So there's like this world opening up for people to build new things right that help other people and i'm super excited about that is that going to disrupt jobs probably yeah probably yeah yeah what would you say to people in terms of like trying to find a way to make sure you have a you have a future job now with this new technology what what should they do to make sure they're still relevant moving moving forward yeah so i think that goes for every technological development if something is very repetitive, right? That is like a something that can be automated. So everything you do where creativity is involved, 
in any way, shape, or form. You can be in, you can be. In, I had like an interesting conversation with a lawyer, right? And and he told me, he said like, you know, if I if I you know if if I'm working with them and then they they're drafting something for me, then that's actually work. It's, it's great if the Jenny I can do that for you. Where the added value of the the lawyer comes is like when, for example, when there's a discussion about certain language or those kind of things, or how you position the business or those kind of things where they help that create that creative element it could also be with an accountant right. or what have you. That is what's so valuable, right? So uh, I'm very I'm I'm very bullish on this because it's like a yes, it will disrupt certain jobs, but it will also enable people to be more creative, right? To create more creative content, more creative products more newer products, other products, those kind of things. So will it be disruptive? Yes, but I think for the good, because it just allows people to be more creative. All right, last question before we let you go. Uh, what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night? So, so I mean, there's, there's a hype, uh, you know, happening in the whole AI space. I think we cannot deny that. And, and, and luckily we see a lot of people enjoying the fruits of that. But there's still also a lot of research happening in the space or companies like us, a lot of engineering is happening. So I want to make sure that people uh, understand where the technology actually is, right? Beyond the hype so that we can help them go to production and build these new products. So that keeps me up at night. So on one hand, a hype is nice because it makes all boats, flow, you know, rise. That's a rising tide. So that's nice. The thing that was like, want to make sure that people are also aware what the where we are as an industry right and i don't mean fact the base but like just ai in general and how we can help people so that keeps me up at night so how can we make sure that we help you because otherwise we make you know we might make foolish decisions as an industry at large too soon so that that's that i would say that would that keeps me up at night all right well you know bob you've done us a great favor to come on the show and and share all your insights i think a lot of people have learned a lot today and i think it's it's been a, a game changer for for most people on the show i'd like to thank you i'm going to give you the last words you know so let people know where to reach out and if they want to learn more about uh, weaviate what to do but thanks thanks again for joining us today well again thanks so much for having me and 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 all these wonderful questions so the, if they go to the website just weaviate.io or if they use any consumer search engine <laughs> they want to use and just type in weaviate they'll find us it's open source. You can find me just under my name on LinkedIn and on Twitter. I'm always happy to answer questions or connect with people. So again, uh, you know, to everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. See you in two weeks. In the meantime, let's make sure you keep up the good work to ensure that our kids have a fighting chance at winning against China 20 years from now. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you.